Well, if you would please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew. Not the Gospel according to Luke, but this time this morning, the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, this is the morning uh, that celebrates 10 years for us as a uh, publicly open church plant. Actually, two days ago, February 23rd, 10 years ago, 2014, were our first public services. Some of you were here for that. Well, not actually here at Carnes for that. We were at Pellissippi State at the time and have been in a couple of other uh, rooms since then. Uh, but 10 years ago this week was the beginning of this particular church. Now, I don't always think that we have to follow some sort of um, a holiday schedule in what we look at from God's word or anything like that. Um, there have been times where we continue on Easter Sunday or even Christmas to just go on through and preach the very next passage. However, um, even I this morning didn't think that celebrating 10 years as a church would be the appropriate time to preach the sermon, uh, woe to you who are rich. Just didn't seem like the best time to do that. So come back next week to hear about how you should think about riches temporal riches and what to do with that. For this morning, what we're going to do is look at Jesus talking to Simon Peter about the church, introducing the church and making a promise to him that we, this very day, are part of the fulfillment of. So Matthew 16, I want to read verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. The first mention chronologically in all of the New Testament of the technical use of this term for assembly, what we now know as the church. This refers to a particular group of people that Jesus would call to himself and would save throughout the course of history. And here it is introduced for the first time. In fact, it's a little bit out of nowhere. Peter is not asking about the church. He's not asking about a group. In fact, he's not asking any questions at all. Jesus is asking him and the disciples, who do people say I am? And he wants to contrast that with who he actually is. And he wants to draw forth this confession from Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But having drawn out that confession that was revealed by the father to Peter on behalf of the disciples as he speaks, as we'll see in a few moments, 
he then mentions this new concept that he hasn't talked about with them before. It is, of course, true that Jesus had uh, an assembly of people, that he has one people from all time, that there is a people of God that has consisted throughout the ages of all of those who would believe and know the truth of the word of God, those who would humble themselves in their sin, who would rely not upon their own merits and their own good works, but instead upon the mercy of God and who would believe in his word for salvation. There has always been a group of those people who would be called the people of God. But here Jesus reveals this institution that he plans to build called the church. The church. And he promises to Peter that he is going to build this. Now, when the readers of Matthew read this, they would have known quite a bit more about the church because they would have been part of it at that time. Some many years later, they would have understood what the church was. But for Peter and the other apostles, this would have been in many ways a new concept. But it was developed over time and came more and more to refer specifically to this church of Jesus Christ. The way that we now simply use the term church and most everyone knows what we mean. They may think that we mean the building. They may think that we refer to some kind of large institution or the formal institution. But in general, people understand at least that it refers to the people who belong to Jesus Christ, to those who are Christians. And in some institutional sense, it refers to a group of people that consists of such Christians. Now, who is it that actually is the church? Well, the church consists of all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those who are saved, all of those who are on their way to heaven because they have trusted in Christ for salvation. They've turned from their sins and now they have the promise of eternal life. This church refers not only to the idea of all of those people together, but it also then is manifested throughout history and in the real world in various local assemblies where these people don't just participate in the life of Christ or the life of God's people, sort of however they want to, but also constantly throughout the New Testament through the institution of local churches gathering together. What Jesus refers to here is the growth of that whole set of universal church consisting of all of the local churches added up together and all of the people of God being added up together. And Jesus is going to build this institution, one universal church that is shown on earth through many, many local churches of people who believe the message of the gospel and who are followers of him. So Jesus makes this promise and I want to show you some ways that he does this. How does Jesus build the church? How has he been building the church? This passage shows us several of them. And the reason I want to do this is so that you can rejoice at being part of this work. And so that you can be motivated to throw yourself all the more into the work that Jesus is doing in this unique and special and eternal institution. So how does Jesus build his church? How does Jesus Christ build the church? Well, first of all, Jesus builds the church as Christ, the Son of God. He builds the church as Christ, the Son of God. I don't want to skip over this point that the church is built upon a right understanding of who Jesus is. And it is built upon him as the one in charge of the church, as the head of the church. Before, Peter says, uh, before Jesus tells Peter anything about what the church is going to do, about what Jesus is going to do with it. Before he even reveals the word at all, he draws out this confession and says, yes, this is correct, Peter. I am the Christ. I am the son 
of the living God. This was the charge that later on, the people who, were, who had him on trial in Matthew chapter 26 would actually say he deserved to die for making. He claimed to be, at least implicitly, the son of the living God, the Christ. And they said, that's blasphemy. We need to kill him. This is not just a small claim. This is rather a, an earth-shaking claim for a, a human being to be the son of the living God and for the Christ to be this one person. There is only one who would ever come, and he is this one. So for him to make this claim is an extremely strong statement. Peter says, this is who you are. And Jesus not only says, you're right, but he says, you're so right that this actually can be said to come from none other than God himself. No human being told you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So who is this? This is the God-man. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the Savior. He is the foundation of the church. The, the identity of Jesus Christ is the basis for all that takes place in the church. And many people rightly understand that the church is not the building per se, but it is the people. But often they miss that the church is also not the church without Christ. It's very easy to have what we call a church where people gather together, they do things together, they serve one another, they might even love one another in certain very real ways. And yet, without Christ and without understanding who he is, the church is not the church. He is the promised one. Christ is the prerequisite for the church to actually be a church. So you have to understand who he is. Peter did, and everyone who came after who actually is rightly called part of the church of Christ understands Jesus and his person and his work. They understand that he is the God-man, fully God, fully man. They understand that he is part of the Trinity, the Son of God. The Word became flesh, the second person in the Trinity. And they understand that he came into the world as the suffering servant to die on our behalf. And that leads us to the second way that Jesus says that he builds the church. These all work together. These are not just alternate ways throughout history, but these are all complementary ways that he builds the church. And the way that he does this is through the apostles' gospel message. Through the apostles' gospel message. Now, there's a, a tricky statement here in Matthew 16, 18 that people have struggled with and wrestled with over time, and I, I won't say that it's an easy thing to sort out or that I don't understand where certain people are coming from on this, but he says here, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We know that Jesus gave Simon the name Peter. This was not his original name, but Jesus gave him the name Peter. And it's a very close name to the word for rock. In English, Peter and rock sound almost nothing alike. In Greek, Peter and rock sound quite a bit alike. They have the same root. And so there has been much debate about this because unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has hijacked this idea to then make the claim that Peter was the original pope or at least the predecessor or sort of the archetype for what the pope should be. Well, there's no mention of anything like that here. There's no mention of any kind of succession in this verse. There's no, uh, there's no uh, pattern here that Peter sets for someone like this. Peter is far, far from any of the modern or historical popes 
The only thing that they share in common is that they both claim to belong to Jesus Christ and they are put in charge of some type of institution claiming to be Christian. But Peter is much, much different in many ways than the Pope. Uh, most importantly of all, the fact that he actually teaches a biblical gospel, one that doesn't throw works into the mix and add human authority and human tradition, but instead actually follows the Bible. This is what Peter did that's different than so many religious leaders today. Peter was not the unique head of the church or the leader of the church on his own in any way, even with such a prominent role that he played. Now, Peter was a leader in many ways, but he was far from in charge of the other people. For example, in Acts 8, the apostles collectively sent Peter and John to go to Samaria. They were in charge, and Peter didn't do this just on his own. In Acts 15, when the Jerusalem council met so that they could discuss the place of the law of Moses in the life of Gentile Christians, Peter stood up among them as one who debated and discussed and gave his opinion and gave his perspective, not as one who stood up and ended the argument based on his own authority. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul even rebuked Peter, opposed him to his face because, Paul says, he stood condemned. Galatians 2.11, because he compromised the gospel, refusing to eat with certain non-Jewish Christians because of certain pressure that he felt. Peter was not any kind of unique sole authority in the church. He was not a first pope or a pattern for it. But this also doesn't mean that Peter wasn't talking in some way, or excuse me, that Jesus wasn't also talking in some way about Peter. We don't have to come here and say that this has nothing to do with Peter just to preserve the error and the heresy of the papacy. We don't have to misuse or avoid what the text says in order to defend against something that has plenty of other reasons not to be true. So we come to it and we say, what does this actually mean? There is an obvious wordplay here, an intentional link where Jesus may not be talking about Peter himself entirely as the rock on which the church is built, but there is a tie-in here that is important. And so this is uh, something where Peter is going to have a place in what Jesus is doing here. At the same time, Peter himself cannot be separated from the confession that he just made. What does he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter and his words are tied in together. And it was exactly upon this message that Peter, yes, had a prominent part in proclaiming early on that the church began to be built. Alvin McLean writes these words about it. He says, Peter is addressed by our Lord as only the first to make the great confession, being therefore only representative of the whole apostolic foundation. So... Jesus is speaking about a rock, and Peter does seem to be part of that, but not separated from the confession that he makes in particular. And Scripture is clear elsewhere that it is ultimately not any apostle, but it is Jesus himself who is the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2 verses 19 and 20 say this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter himself played a critical role in Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, 
we read that Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised and that, that God effectually worked through him in his apostleship to the Jews. We also read in Acts 15, 17, where Peter says, In the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So even to the Gentiles outside of Israel, he was the first one to go and to proclaim the message to them. Peter had a privileged part in doing this, but he is one of the apostles along with John and James and the others. He is one who proclaimed this message. And this is the point here, which is that the message Peter proclaimed alongside the other apostles is what is at the root of what we do as a church. It is at the foundation of the church. And this is why Ephesians chapter 2 says this, that you are built on the foundation, not of Peter. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that represent? The truth that is revealed to them and through them out into the world. When Jesus came into the world, he brought the truth of himself and the gospel. And yet Jesus takes this truth and entrusts it to other people who would then proclaim it outward. And the apostles and prophets got authoritative divine truth. They wrote the scriptures. They preached prophetic messages. They told the truth from God in a way that was not their interpretation or just their kind of riffing on things. Instead, it was perfect, inspired, completely true in every way. And those apostles and prophets, their message serves as the foundation of the church, not only when it started, but continually throughout history. The apostolic preaching of the gospel is what we stand on as a church. Jesus builds his church through that apostolic gospel message. And it's important to understand that we preach the same message that they did, the same truth, the same gospel, the same Jesus Christ. It's continued throughout history. It's not something that changes over time. It couldn't change over time because the content of the message didn't change. The gospel is the same. So we shouldn't be doing anything different than what they did before, what they were doing the very day that Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and began preaching that Christ suffered and died and that he was raised from the dead. So the Apostle Paul writes things like this in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul received this message from the Lord. He passed it to the church, and the church is supposed to continue to pass this message down. And thankfully, we have it recorded for us in Scripture so that we can do this. So it's our job as a church to continue to proclaim this message apostolic message the message that came when Jesus gave the message to the apostles and then they codified it and they wrote it down and they passed it along in perpetuity Jude verse 3 he says this beloved while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints we live in a culture that maybe more than ever values novelty. And we also live in a culture which is the same as it has always been in that sinners don't want to hear that they are sinners. It's not pleasant to hear. And oftentimes people who are in the church will look at the gospel message and say, this isn't working well enough on its own. It's not working fast enough on its own. It's not working the way that I want on its own. 
and we have certain desires for things to change on that front. And so the church will often be tempted to do something different, to make their message a little different than the apostolic gospel presentation, than the message given to the apostles and the prophets, than the message Jesus proclaimed. Or the church will be tempted not just to alter the message, but maybe even to focus on something else that surrounds that message. To make the church about something that goes above and beyond the gospel and the word of God, and to appeal to people on some other basis. Paul writes about the folly of this in 1 Corinthians 1. And beginning in verse 24, 21, he says these words. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. These people want this, those people want that, and we preach something entirely different than what they're asking for. We don't really care what the world wants. We don't really care what sinful people are after. This is not to say they're worse than us. We also once were foolish ourselves, Titus 3 tells us. But we don't cater what the church does to the desires of people around us. We don't listen to people that say the church ought to be this or that. The church should look like this or that. That's not really anything that we should be concerned about. What we should be concerned about is what does the Bible tell us to do? And Paul says we preach Christ crucified with expected results to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Neither group, if you don't give them what they want, likes the response except there's a surprising result because in 1 Corinthians 1.24, he says this about Christ crucified. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is he saying? He says, if God calls you to salvation, if he works in your heart to draw you to himself, then it doesn't matter what your background was. It doesn't matter what you would have wanted. It doesn't matter what you were clamoring for and calling for or what you thought the church should be. God is going to save you using this foolish seeming message, the message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified. And in this is demonstrated God's power and God's wisdom because Christ is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Christ represents the wisdom of God. Everyone else has their ideas, and there are always ideas, philosophical ideas, uh, tactical ideas, strategic ideas about what the church should be and do and how to live life and what the best practices are for how to live in this world. And yet God says in the same passage, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and it's greater than anything man can come up with. And so we should never be tempted to abandon the things that God has given, the means that God has given. We should never doubt the power of the gospel to save people. And because we understand that, we should be ready to proclaim that, even when someone doesn't seem like they're going to believe, even when someone seems hostile to the message, when they don't want that, when they don't want to hear what we're doing, they don't want to hear anything to do with Jesus. Well, that doesn't really stop God from acting anyway. It doesn't stop God from saving them. God calls people. And he demonstrates his power and his wisdom in the gospel. The gospel has never been in tune with what is popular. Never. We don't have to change it because it's, there's some type of perceived exception in our day where we're better and different or our world is better and different than all those ancient people who didn't understand anything. 
Now, the gospel has always been out of tune with what the world wants, and it still is today, and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. The gospel message is what we proclaimed, and there is no other way. And unfortunately, people love to build the church all kinds of other ways, but there really is no way to actually build the church the way that it's supposed to be done apart from the word of God and faithfulness to the gospel message. We read about this as well. One final note on this point in 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10, where Paul says this, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is to say, you can't go back and uproot the church because it's founded on Christ and him alone. But then we need to build on top of that. If we're going to do the work of ministry in the church, we have a responsibility to be careful how we build. And it means that we don't just say, well, the gospel is laid down. It means that we do things that align with that. For no man, it says, verse 12, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But if he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And then he gives a warning about the value of the church. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. We ought to build with earnestness and zeal and labor the church that God has made, but we also ought to build with carefulness, with fidelity to the scriptures, with adherence to the gospel message. We ought to make sure that everything that we do is in line with the scriptures because God cares about that, because that is the basis for heavenly reward. So then, we build the church as Jesus Christ's servants by preaching the gospel, and he builds his church. That leads us to a third way in which he builds the church, and he builds his church as the owner. He builds the church as the owner. What does he say in Matthew 16, 18? I will build the church. I will build your church. I will build a church. No, he doesn't say any of those. He says, I will build my church, a crucial, personal, possessive pronoun, my church. This is not man's invention. It's not man's possession. It is not man's institution. This is not just a bunch of religious people got together and said, hey, let's come up with some rules to control society. This is not a bunch of people who kind of developed a story over time and said, well, you know, let's get these traditions together and sort of cobble them together now that we all sort of have the same similar story and then let's make an institution out of this. This is not how things work. This is Jesus' church. It belongs to him. Colossians 1.18 tells us he is also head of the body, the church. He is in charge. He owns the people of the church. We are his servants, his people, as Titus 2.14 tells us, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Sometimes people forget that the church belongs to Jesus. 
Now, there are subtle ways that takes place where we think, you know, this is my church and our church. And we can kind of just forget to talk about Jesus. And we just think about the church that we go to or the church that we're part of. And we should avoid that kind of less important error. But other people treat the church as if it were their own implicitly. They don't necessarily think about this, but they just will begin to do things as if it belonged to them. As if they can just do things however they want in the church. As if the church can be changed and adjusted and adapted and built however somebody wants to. Well, the reality is it doesn't belong to us once it has been built. The reality is that it belongs to Jesus Christ. We don't get to do with it whatever we want. We are stewards. We're servants. It belongs to him. We're responsible to do things his way. So it's good to be uh, creative in certain ways. It's good to use ingenuity and to think carefully about how you might apply biblical principles in whatever world and whatever place you're living and whatever time you're in. It's good to, uh, to use all of your resources to do that, but we have to watch out for the danger that we might reinvent what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be the same institution from the time Jesus begins it until he returns. The church is not ours to do with as we please. Instead, it belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, of course, an important uh, caveat here is that we're not just talking about our own local church. Crossway Bible Church is not the only church of Jesus Christ, and I certainly hope that you don't think so. I certainly hope that your view of who belongs to Christ is quite a bit broader than something like that. But at the same time, Crossway Bible Church most definitely does belong to him and not to us. It is his church. It is not to be treated as any other owner or as anyone else's. It belongs to him. Now, Jesus cares about this church and he brings his power to bear upon the church. And so he builds his church next by his own unstoppable power. By his own unstoppable power. What does he say in this verse? Not I hope to build the church. Not I plan to build the church. Not Lord willing I'm going to build the church. He doesn't try to build the church. He doesn't make an effort. He makes a guarantee. I will build my church. Just very matter of fact. Peter, I'm going to do this. Okay, that's it. End of story. And there's no arrogance, there's no smugness in the promise here. This isn't, you know, I'm going to do this because I'm just so much better than you. He is that much better than us, but it's just merely a statement of fact. And for Peter, this is meant to be, and really for anyone who hears it, this is meant to be a major encouragement. The fact that this is inevitable. This is going to happen. Jesus possesses all power, all authority. He can do anything he wants. And where does he choose to apply that power? Through the church. There are so many things that we want to get into, that we like getting into. There are efforts that people make that improve the circumstances of humanity and that make things better in the lives of other people or that are enjoyable or that are even permissible according to Scripture. But Jesus has the opportunity to do really anything he wants because he has all authority and he has all power. And what does he do? He says, this is the thing I'm going to build. I'm going to build the church. The church. That's where he focuses it. Not because he's limited to only one thing and can't do anything else, but because he says, this is my design. According to my wisdom, this is what I want to happen. We see this played out 
in uh, such places as uh, Ephesians chapter 3. You can look there because there are a couple of pertinent passages. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul says this in verses 8 through 10. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom might now be made known. So look at this. There is a mystery. There is something that God had at a certain point not yet revealed and it is now brought to light. And what is it that is brought to light? The wisdom of God in a particular way that it might now be made known through the church, through the church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is to those angelic principalities, those rulers, both, um, both uh, good angels, if you will, and evil angels or demonic forces. Anyone who is watching from outside this world, and he says, God's wisdom is displayed not just in creation, not just in the scriptures, but in this institution of the church. God wants to show people how wise he is. And if you're part of his church, you get to be part of that. Now you say, well, that's great. That's because I'm so wise, isn't it? That's not really, of course, what the point is. God's wisdom is put on display because he saves people. Because he brings together people who otherwise would not have been brought together. Because he overcomes sin. Because he turns people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul said in the chapter before this, into people who are alive in Christ. Those who have been saved by grace through faith unto good works. So God has created this institution of the church so that he might show his wisdom to the watching spiritual realm. And he goes on at the end of this chapter and he says this in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God can do anything that he wants to do. His ability exceeds even our ability to think of an idea, much less to ask for it. And Paul says that power is at work within us, not only individually, but within the church. That's where God is at work. This is where the Lord Jesus and his power is on display and his glory is to be put on display in the church. What a privilege to be part of something like that. What a privilege to be part of the institution that God chooses to work in in this way. God is so gracious to give us this opportunity. How does Jesus build his church? How does he use his power? Well, he, he opens hearts to receive the truth. Acts 16, verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening to Paul and the others. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord draws people and opens their heart to respond to the gospel. Um, you might say, well, if Christ is working and if his power is at work and he will build my church, then let's just sit back and watch the show. But that, of course, forgets one of the ways that he builds his church. He doesn't just do it through opening hearts, but he does it through using other people. He works by the gifts that he gives to the church. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, 
it talks about Christ and it says he gave some apostles, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. How does Jesus build his church? How does he build it up? By giving the word of God to people who can proclaim it. People proclaim the word of God to everyone in the church. We all take it and learn from it and then we serve. And the body of Christ is built up. Jesus doesn't just build the church by adding believers. He builds the church by building up the church itself. The work is not done when a person comes to faith in Christ. Instead, it has only just begun. And God uses people through their ministry, through their serving one another, through spiritual gifts that he gives, through their desire to build up and edify one another. Jesus Christ does this. So Jesus builds the church and he does so through other people. Consider a building project with someone who is the owner of the building. And they're not the one on site, you know, working and doing this. They might hire hundreds or even thousands of construction workers to do this. Supervisors, contractors, whoever it might be. And they get in there and then they, uh, they work on the building. But who is it that actually builds the building? Who gets credit for the building? It's the one who started the whole thing and made it happen. Of course, people understand, and the person who did that might give credit to the people, to the workers, and, and should on some level. But the reality is the one who does this and who initiates this whole thing and oversees the whole thing can rightly said to be the builder and get all of the credit for this. And of course, how much more true is this when anything that we do in the church as participating in the building of the church is by his grace, his forgiveness to let us in in the first place, his empowerment through spiritual gifts, his wisdom that he gives us, and then even the responsiveness of anyone to the message that we proclaim. Everything that we do in the church, all the ministry that we do, is a privilege to get to serve the Lord in that way, and it is Christ working in us. Even the Apostle Paul, who was more gifted than perhaps anyone, and who said he labored more than all of the apostles, gave a qualifier about his labor in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, yet not I, but the grace of Christ with me. He understood who was working through him. And what an amazing thing it is that when you serve in these various capacities, you're getting ready to host something, you're serving in the nursery, you're serving coffee to people, you're greeting people that you don't know, you're tearing down, you're setting up, whatever it is that you're doing, what can you say with the Apostle Paul? Yes, I'm doing this work and it's a privilege to get to do it, but also yet not I, but the grace of Christ with me, which shouldn't be something that discourages us because we don't get the credit, but it should be we can do things we otherwise could never do because Christ enables us, because the God of the universe is at work within us by his Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This is an amazing thing and it gives us so many opportunities to do what was never possible apart from Christ. What a privilege to serve in his church. And of course... We know that Jesus builds his church as one who accompanies us always. He is always with us. Matthew 28, 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. A promise that uh, by logical reasoning does not just apply to the apostles, none of whom are actually still here, but the age is still going. So he must refer to the continuation of those who are making disciples throughout the ages, which includes us. Jesus is with us as his church, as we do the work of making disciples in the world. He doesn't just hire the workers and then leave and come back when it's done. He's with us 
and he's involved in every detail. Jesus builds his church by his unstoppable power. Well, he needs it because he builds it next in the face of all opposition. In the face of all opposition. He says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. They will not overpower the church. And this is a phrase that refers to basically the, the entrance to or even the power of death. Uh, Hades referring to the temporary place that people may go upon death or even uh, sometimes referring to death itself. And generally speaking, this would refer to death for unbelieving people. It kind of represents everything that is against life and everything that is against the work that God would be doing. But he says this opposition will not prevail. It will not overpower the church. It will not win. This, of course, then implies that somewhere someone is going to be trying. And we find this in two main categories, satanic opposition and then the resulting human opposition. As far as satanic opposition goes, we know that the devil fights against the church and he fights hard. He is referred to in Revelation 12 as the accuser of the brethren. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we hear that he is seeking someone to devour. He's like a roaring lion. Ephesians 6, 12 tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 2, 11, that we not be ignorant of his schemes. The devil tries to trick and deceive and to trap and to draw people away after him. He opposes God's people in every possible way. And yet, he will not be victorious. He will not be able to win the fight. There's human opposition that accompanies this. Two main categories under that. One is inside the church and one is outside the church. Inside the church, there are people who will try to distort the gospel message. They'll try to change the truth. They'll try to make you believe things that you shouldn't believe. And so Jude 4 warns against this. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are people who will always, always come up from inside the church to try to take the teaching of the gospel and the message of the word of God and to distort it in some way to undermine the work that God is doing. Paul tells us in Romans 16 to watch out for such people. Verses 17 and 18, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Jesus Christ, if he's going to build his church, has to overcome the efforts of people who would tear apart the church from the inside. But also, he fights on behalf of the church against those who would attack it from the outside. The church was persecuted continually during the time that the New Testament was being written. And even before it was written, Peter and John were beaten up and locked in prison for daring to tell people that Christ was raised from the dead. Paul and Silas were illegally arrested, Roman law being violated. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. And Peter was about to have the same fate, only avoiding it by means of literal divine intervention. Paul was chased all over the Roman Empire. He only kept his life by being arrested and thrown into jail. And even then, his life was spared from murder only because his nephew overheard a plot about trying to kill him during a prison transport. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, he warns against Phagellus and Hermogenes. Chapter 2, he warns against Hymenaeus and Philetus. Chapter 3, he warns against those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins and led on by various impulses. Chapter 4, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much hard, uh, harm and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds and be on guard against him yourself for he vigorously opposed our teaching. 2 Corinthians 11 Verse 26, he says he was in frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, I'm going to stay in Corinth, or I'm staying in Ephesus um, because a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. There's a lot of people here against me, so I'm going to stay. I'm going to keep preaching because there's a wide door open. He just understood that this was part of the equation. Hostility toward the church and toward Christ just kind of comes with the territory, just the way it's going to be. And yet, Jesus Christ says, I'm going to build it. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. All of this, of course, is not to mention the limitations of people like us. If uh, you would think, you know, if God is using us to build the church, then he's in real trouble. Um, that's how I feel anyway. And yet, what does he say? 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The church is filled with finite, weak people, not very impressive to the world in many ways. This is what we are. 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despise God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. He does it so that no man may boast before God. God selects a group of people that are going to make up his church that are so relatively unimpressive that he has to get the credit. Because there's no other explanation for this. This is what Jesus does. He builds his church against all opposition, satanic and human, using people that the world would not expect. This is what we are. All these enemies, all these adversaries, all these weaknesses, and yet he says what? The gates of Hades will not overpower it. It is sure to work out. So what is the safest investment that you can make? Is it gold or guns or T-bills or land, maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's getting on board with what Jesus is doing in the church because he is going to win 100% chance of perfect success in all that he wants to do. And what a blessing it is to get a tip on that from the scriptures before the outcome happens. What a blessing it is to be able to go all in on the church of Jesus Christ. He's going to build his church. Finally, he's going to do this until the fulfillment of his purpose. We already saw that he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. How long will Jesus be building his church? Well, until it is built up, until it's like him. We read in Romans 8, 29, that God predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. And Paul tells us that his goal is to admonish every man and teach every man with all wisdom 
so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the goal, completeness in Christ. And everything we do in the church is toward that end, to bring people to a knowledge of Christ and then to bring one another toward that completeness that only Christ can give. This is not just the work of the apostles, by the way. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is all of our privilege and all of our responsibility. And we do this until Christ's body is built up. One last passage, Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are to speak the truth to one another, and we are to grow up. As far as churches go, our church is kind of just a kid, but we're supposed to grow up, not just in age, but in maturity. What a tragedy it would be if we got older, but not any more grown up. So let's hope that we can grow up. Let's work toward growing up. And let's be thankful for the work that God does in his church, including in our own. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your work in the church through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we get to be part of it. And uh, as we go to celebrate after we sing this, uh, this time that we have had, uh, these, these past 10 years, we pray that there would be, if the Lord Jesus tarries, many more of going deeper in our godliness, going wider in our gospel proclamation, going higher in our praise of you, being more and more sincere and truthful and obedient in our love for you. Father, we thank you now for the food that we will be eating. We thank you for the fellowship that we get to share. We pray that you would bless that time, and we pray that you would be glorified by it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.